0: Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Please open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 2.
1: It says in verses 1 through 6, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. You know, there are a lot of decisions in life that we will have to make over the course of our lifetime, many options, many choices, not only for the individual, but for society, society as a whole. I mean, we're coming up on an election in the fall, and we want to know what the best decision, what the best choice is. Uh, to make for uh, the benefit of of society, how do we gain two thousand and twenty wisdom in two thousand and twenty it 's been said that hindsight is two thousand and twenty that means when we look back at our choices, we should be able to see the full picture of the consequences of those choices and determine whether they were good or bad. but we desire wisdom before. We make those decisions, don't we? Wouldn't that be much better that instead of looking back and making that determination that we can, with some degree of certainty, know whether the decisions we make, the choices we make, are going to be good or not? It's like a fork in the road. Many times there'll be those decisions put before us, And we want to know, as Christians, whether we're doing the right thing, whether we're following God's way or not. Uh, Yogi Berra once said, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. But those forks in the road, right? That was obviously a joke, and Yogi's got a million of them. But which way do we go? What choice do we make? There was a famous poem by Robert Frost, and many of you might know it as The Road Less Traveled, but that's not actually the name of the poem. The name of the poem is The Road Not Taken, and it goes like this. It's not that long. I want to read it because it's important. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry, I could not travel both. And be one traveler long I stood, I looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps a better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that passing there, had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way i doubted if i should ever come back i shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence two roads diverged in a wood and i i took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference now the funny thing about that poem is that frost really never resolves the dilemma of which road to take He took the one less traveled, but never tells us if it was the right decision or not. He said it made all the difference, but we don't know if that difference was for the better or for the worse. Many people have interpreted the meaning of that poem by saying Frost was encouraging us to step out of our comfort zone, to express our individuality and avoid following the crowd. It seems as though the road less traveled is the courageous the gutsy one to take. But because the traveler in this poem went on feelings and emotions and on what he could see with his eyes, we never really know if it was a good decision or not. As people, we need to know and we want—we should want to know more clearly whether the choices we make are wise choices. And only through God's word are we able to get guidance in making those decisions in life. In chapter 2 of the book of Proverbs, like many chapters through the, through the uh, series of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, it's filled with if-then statements. I don't know if there's any computer programmers out here, but long ago I remember just the basics of computer programming. If this, then that, right? There's always that, that uh, response to something. Many of the illustrations through the book of Proverbs are not definitive if-then scenarios. Most of them are best-case scenarios. In other words, where if everything worked the way it should, if everything worked the way it was supposed to in a God-centered world, then these things would occur. But that's not always the case. Everything doesn't always work because we're not always God-centered in our thinking. And if you're depending on others to for that response, um, then you may not get what God's response would be. This illustration in this proverb is a little different. You see, the the one on the other end of the if-then statements is God. And because God never wavers, never falters, His responses are always perfect... And his response to our sincere seeking will always result in good. If we're asking for direction, if we're asking for guidance, he will give it. And he will always cause that then to righteously occur in response to our if. And our if in this particular proverb are filled with action statements. Action statements. So we're going to go through it And we're going to look at some of these if action statements. In verses 1 through 4, we're actually introduced to eight if statements. It says, my son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures. These are the foundation, foundational if statements to this proverb." Keep in mind that they all describe an action. These are things that we must do in order to receive that then response from the Lord. So in verse 1 it says, My son, if you receive my words, this first action word here, receive. In Hebrew it means to take, to get, to fetch, to lay hold of, to seize or acquire. Most of those descriptions, those definitions, actually suggest action on our part. Sometimes we think about receiving something more as a passive thing. Well, someone's giving, that's the action, I'm just receiving. But the meaning of this word is different. It requires us to do something. It requires us to step up and take some action? Are we laying hold? Are we seizing all that God has and wants for us? Are we making His Word the most important thing? Are we doing those things? Are we making those choices? You know, Solomon here is giving instruction to his son. But this is also how God interacts with us, isn't it? He interacts with us as His children. And He wants our relationship with Him... To be that two-way street, what are we to receive in this verse? Well, we're to receive the Word of God. This tells us that there needs to be a conscious decision on our part to lay hold of God's Word, to seize it, to acquire it. When we do that, we set the trajectory of our lives in God's direction. This is always where He wants us, isn't it? because he always desires the best for us. When we go off on our own, we often suffer the consequences of our foolish decisions. God would much rather have us avoid those pitfalls and follow his ways. But that is an active choice on our part. And unlike the unknown In Frost's poem, we don't need to worry what is at the end of the road because we're receiving wisdom from God. And we know that whatever he has for us, it's going to be for the best. Now that road may look bumpy at times, and it may not look as though we're on God's path, but sometimes our eyes can be deceiving, right? Sometimes our emotions can deceive us because we don't know Necessarily, what God's, God has at the end of that road, but we need to trust. The other part of verse 1, that other action, if, if you treasure my commands within, within you, that's treasure to hide, to store up. What do we treasure? Well, we treasure the things that are important to us, right? We hide them, we accumulate them, we keep them safe. God's saying we're supposed to do that with His Word. David knew the importance of the Word of God. In Psalm 119, with a beautiful psalm that speaks about God's Word, but in verse 11, it says, Your Word I have hidden in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. See, there's a reason why God tells us to consider His Word a treasure, so that we will not sin against Him. And Honestly, bringing harm to ourselves a lot of the times. That's what Solomon means when he says to treasure God's commands. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Luke in 1234, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. He tells us that our heart will follow our passions. If we treasure the things of this world, our heart will follow the things of this world. If we treasure the things of God, our heart will follow God. You know, God's commands are not burdensome to us because we know He always has the best for us. We may, our flesh may cringe when we hear the word command, thinking when someone commands something of us, it's against our will, Right? And it's only for their benefit. But God's commands are different. They're not a burden to us. They're not for His benefit, but they're for our benefit. His commands are a blessing. And then in verse 2 it says, So that you incline your ear to wisdom. Incline your ear to wisdom. That word incline is to hear, to be attentive to, to hearken to pay attention, to listen. This is not just the act of hearing through your ears, but it's to be attentive to what we are hearing. To incline means to lean in to something, to be predisposed to the things of God, to gaining wisdom for our lives. You know, our ears can be deceptive because we can hear something and it may not have any effect on us at all. Or we may hear it incorrectly because we're not inclined or predisposed to God's will for our lives. We may even hear something with an unconscious or even a conscious bias. So that when we hear something, we already have this preconceived notion or bias as to what that means. We need to be listening with open ears And hearing truly what the Lord wants to tell us. Listen to Jesus explain in this beautiful parable in Luke chapter 8 of the four soils. As he goes on, he says in verse 11 through 15, Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Notice, they heard, but they didn't really hear. They heard, but it wasn't a saving faith. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. They heard but did they really hear the way God wants us to? Now, the ones that fell among thorns, verse 14, are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. They heard also. So how can all of these people hear the same thing and have three different responses, three different reactions to it? And then in verse 15, it says, But the ones that fell on good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and a good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Are you listening to God with a noble and a pure heart? Are you listening to God expecting that He has the best for you, that He has a plan for your life? Are you listening to God and desiring to make that a part of who you are? That's the difference in whether you're really hearing the way God wants us to. At least eight times in the New Testament, Jesus uses this phrase, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, that sounds like a kind of a strange statement, doesn't it? But when we unpack it, it's actually very profound. See, Jesus isn't talking about that physical part of our body known as our ears. He's talking about whether, he's not talking about whether they function properly or whether we have some type of hearing deficit. He's talking about how we hear. Do we hear the word of God with a noble and a good heart? Do we hear the word with a desire to grow in our relationship? with God to grow closer to him. These are all the things that we need to consider when we hear. The next part of verse 2 says, "apply and apply your heart to understanding." This action word really is the one that kind of produces that change in our life that he wants for us. Are we applying? That Hebrew word means to stretch out, to extend, to turn, to spread out. To pitch like you're pitching a tent. When we apply God's word to our lives, we settle in to his ways and turn away from our ways. It's like when you go camping and you pitch a tent at the campsite. You plan to stay for a while. You're making yourself at home there. Well, that's exactly that same word. Are you applying what you're hearing to your lives? We need to become Comfortable in doing things God's way. Not uncomfortable. You know, sometimes we're too comfortable doing things our way or the way of the world. But sometimes when God is giving us direction and guidance in something, we become a little uncomfortable. It's out of our comfort zone. It's not what we would naturally choose to do. And yet He wants us to settle in to his plan for our life. This is a deliberate decision on our part. And many times it's a stretch, right? It's a stretch from what we would normally do, but it's always the best. How many times have we made decisions in our lives and failed to include God in the, in that process? How many times do we hear but don't apply the word? James says in verse 22 of chapter 1, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We can deceive ourselves. We can say, oh, we came to a Bible study. We came to church on Sunday. We heard We heard what the preacher said. But are, you, are, you really, are we really hearing what's being taught? Are we making that application to our lives? Many times in the wisdom literatures throughout the Bible, we see the author use kind of progressive ideas that build one upon another or become progressively more intense as the verses go on. We see this progression in these verses. As Solomon urges his son now to receive, to treasure, to incline, and to apply, now he becomes more powerful, more intense in his tone, and his exhortation to his son. In verses 3 and 4, it says, Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, crying out, this next action we take as it relates to God's word, it's calling out, it's crying out, it's almost a sense of desperation there. Are we desperate for God's Word in our life? Are we desperate for that relationship with God? This is the help we need, right, to discern right from wrong. This is the help we need when we have choices to make, decisions to make. Another way of uh, saying discernment is judgment. Are we able to judge properly properly? because we're receiving wisdom from the Lord to make those judgments. We should be crying out for that type of judgment, that wisdom. You know, the world can be very confusing at times, right? We're bombarded with opinions, beliefs, attitudes, and feelings, godly discernment, though will cut through all of that rhetoric and reveal God's true heart even as it relates sometimes to politics. You know, sometimes our sensitivities might lean in a certain direction, but we need to make sure that we aren't following our own feelings or emotions, but we're crying out for godly wisdom. You know, I make it a habit of listening to all sides of the political spectrum. Um... On my satellite radio, there's some conservative stations, and then you click a couple stations down, and you have you, you can hear the other side. And let me tell you, um, both are very passionate, both are very sincere. I believe both seem very authentic on the part of those who adhere to a particular political viewpoint. But I also believe and know that when these viewpoints are at odds with one another, that we need something beyond ourselves, something beyond our own intellect, to properly discern what God's will is. Don't we? Don't we want to do God's will? Don't we want to know what God's heart is in these things? Charles Spurgeon said, "...discerning is not knowing the difference between right and wrong." It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. Wow. Because sometimes we hear something, it sounds almost right. But if we don't really have the wisdom from God, we won't be able to discern whether that's God's will or maybe the will of the enemy that we're hearing. We need discernment to know the difference between right and almost right. And then he goes on in verse 3, and lift up your voice for understanding. Lifting up, similar to crying out, right, for discernment. But this is also seeking knowledge, seeking wisdom, and putting it into practice. It also includes using our intellect. I'm amazed when people think that as Christians, we're just dumb sheep, blindly following some ancient tradition. God expects us to think. Not just blindly follow. Actually, blind faith is not a biblical idea. Blind faith is not biblical faith. God doesn't want us to leave our brains outside the church doors. We gather to study His Word together. It's a time to put our thinking caps on. Amen? Isaiah 118 tells us, It says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God invites us in to reason with him. He desires for us to understand his plan for salvation through Jesus Christ. He wants to impart wisdom to those who desire it. And it takes sometimes some level of intellect on our part. Are we willing to bring our intellect into our relationship with, with the Lord and not just go on feelings or emotions? Many athe- atheists will, uh, will be critics of Christianity, saying that the Christian faith is a blind faith, it's irrational, it's stupid. Uh, Richard Dawkins, one of the foremost atheists, atheists once asserted that faith actually opposes reason. He called faith a delusion, which he described as persistent false belief held in the face of strong contradictory evidence. We know that Christianity actually values the mind. Despite what Dawkins claimed, Christianity values the role of, of the mind, which includes the proper use of reason and argumentation. Listen to what Jesus said here in Mark chapter 12. He was always being confronted. Throughout the Gospels, we see these accounts of him being confronted by these religious leaders. And, you know, they had a lot of intellect And they did a lot of studying of the scriptures. And they always felt like there was a chance to maybe catch Jesus or to trip him up in some way. And it says in verse 28 to 30 of chapter 12 of Mark, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Now, interesting that these religious leaders overheard Jesus and the disciples' reasoning between one another. They weren't just throwing out blind faith. They were actually having an intellectual conversation. But notice what Jesus does. See, this, what he quoted here is from Deuteronomy, and it's the Shema. It's that ancient Jewish prayer that's still recited to this day. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul. Jesus added, and all your mind. Jesus added, all your mind. I can only venture a guess as to why he may have done that. It may have been, giving that situation, the circumstances where these religious leaders were there, and they were trying to reason, and he was reasoning with his disciples, that he wanted to show these religious leaders that... Our minds are part of our relationship with the Lord. Show them that faith in God is more than just a matter of memorizing and reciting prayers, but one of reasons. Notice the scribe came to him after he overheard a reasoned intellectual conversation about the things of God. You know, God wants us to reason with him about the significant issues of life. He's invited us to receive wisdom, which will help us navigate this world. Which is why we have classes here at this church, like the apologetics class that's coming up in September, so that we can be educated on the things of God and on the Scripture, so we can go out into this world and we can reason with people, we can engage people, with a level of intelligence and reason so that we may draw people to salvation in Jesus. And the next two words here in Proverbs 2, it says, seek and search. If you seek her as silver, in verse 4, and search for her as hidden treasures. So there's a value here that he's putting on something If you put value on something, you're going to seek for it. If you lose it, you're going to search for it. If you lost $100 in your house, you're going to probably rip the house apart trying to find that $100. You put value on that, right? Are we putting value on God's Word? Solomon records this proverb as a conversation, right, between a father and a son. Many times the father will use some type of imagery or figurative language to get his point across. And this is helpful in remembering the lessons we learn. This picture of silver and treasures and valuable things kind of makes it stick in our minds, right? We're not just to seek and search, but we're to do it with a sense of seriousness and authenticity. Knowing that wisdom from God is the only thing, the only thing, that will point us in the right direction in life. So now in the next few verses, we're done with the if statements in the first half. Now we're going to look at the then, the, the response, what God does for us in response to those things. And it says in verses 6-6, well, 5 and 6, it says, Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and, f- and find the knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Knowledge and understanding. The fear of God and knowledge, they kind of go hand in hand. This is intimacy with Christ. This, this can only come as we study His Word. That's where He'll reveal Himself to us isn't it? That's where we'll gain understanding as to who he truly is. And then, as, his, as he's revealed more and more through his word, we'll begin to respect and honor, show reverence that's due him. Once we realize how much he loves us, we'll revere him more and more. And that's our goal. That each and every day we love God more. Each and every day we worship Him greater than we did the day before. Because each and every day He's revealing Himself more and more to us. Proverbs 1.7, Solomon kind of lays the foundation to this whole book. He says, "...the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fool, but fools despise wisdom and instruction." Look at all that God wants to do for us to live a more fruitful and productive life. These are the benefits of seeking him, of seeking wisdom from God. Verse 7 says he stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He has more than enough wisdom for all of us. If we don't receive it now, he'll put it away and there'll be a time that when we seek it, it'll be there. For us, He won't leave us uh, without the wisdom as we ask sincerely, as we pray for God to reveal it. He won't run out. He's a shield to those who walk uprightly, verse 7. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of His saints. He will protect us from false doctrine, He'll help us make choices that are in line with His word. The path that we should be traveling on as believers is that path of justice, the path of righteousness. And it's so important as we walk in this world, which is honestly, for, for the most part, it's so against the things of God. We can't know his heart unless we seek his heart. But he'll be faithful to reveal it to us. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. As we walk in this world, we want the word of God to enlighten our way so that we can see and make sure that we're going in the direction that he wants us to. Verses 9 through 11 says, Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity and every good path, When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you, understanding will keep you. You know, we hear a lot today about justice, about equity. But how are we really to know what true justice is, what true equity is, unless we know the one who gives it to us? What we get from God is not merely intellectual understanding. This passage does away with any idea that it is ever appropriate to just keep filling our heads with knowledge about God and not translate it into the way we live our lives. That's making application. Part of understanding and knowing God is coming to know how he defines these things that are in the culture now so that we can rightly discern How does God define justice? How does He define righteousness? How does He define equity? We want to know His heart. You know, culture is always searching for social change of some kind. And it's many times found in large social movements or in large causes This chapter challenges us to look at things like social justice, but as it relates to God. This text raises the concern that we always ground our social movements in a deep understanding of the wisdom of God. A passion for justice that's not rooted in God's wisdom will ultimately not have the impact that we want it to. Because it won't have the weight, what, of God's authority behind it. We may wish to make impact in our society. We may wish to make impact, an impact in the culture. And that can be good. That's not a bad thing in and of itself. But true social change can only be the outflow of right understanding of who God is. Or maybe we just desire to impact our sphere of influence, our family, our friends, our coworkers, our fellow students, if we're in school. And that's a good thing, too. That impact must also begin with a right understanding of who God is. You know, Pastor Joe prayed for revival. We pray for revival all the time. Revival starts with one person individually, passionately giving his heart to Christ and then wanting others to do the same thing. That's how revival starts. It doesn't begin necessarily in mass gatherings of uh, social reform. It's an individual heart given over to Christ. Whichever way we're going, though, whatever impact we want to make for our world, it must begin with one thing, that relationship with God. As we start to finish up, I want to show a video. And, you know, today we went from Yogi Berra to Robert Frost. We're going to wind up with Einstein. So I told you you had to put your thinking caps on today. But this is a really excellent video, and then when when it's done, I'm going to come back and I'm going to close things up. So take a look.
2: As a child, Albert Einstein was fascinated with a compass. Watching the steady northward pull of the needle, he said there must be something behind things, something deeply hidden. He wanted to find that something. As an adult, he devoted his life to physics in the attempt to understand the laws of the universe. He studied light, motion, gravity, space, time, electromagnetism. He developed the quantum theory. He was awarded the Nobel Prize. His theory of relativity and the expansion of the universe led to the Big Bang Theory. But what was behind the Big Bang? Could it be that something was hidden wasn't a what, but a who? Something about the mystery and beauty of creation and its order kept bringing Einstein back to the idea that there must be a God. He said... We are in the position of a little child entering a huge library filled with many books in many languages. The child knows someone must have written those books. It does not know how, it does not understand the languages in which they are written. The child dimly suspects a mysterious order to the arrangement of the books, but doesn't know what it is. That, it seems to me, is the attitude of even the most intelligent human being toward God. Throughout his life, Albert Einstein, the man of science, would struggle with the idea of faith. He had been zealous in his Jewish faith as a child in Germany, but later turned away from it as a teen. Popular science books had convinced him much of the Bible could not be true. As an adult, he admitted that he was enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus, he said. His personality pulsates every word. No myth is filled with such life. Yet when asked the question, do you believe in God, Einstein could not produce a straightforward response. I'm not an atheist. The problem involved is too vast for our limited minds. Through all his searching, Albert Einstein, one of the greatest scientific minds of modern times, struggled and wrestled with the question of God. But in the end, he did not have faith. But it's the end that does matter. The Bible makes a distinction between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. The wisdom of the world is knowledge or power, but the wisdom of God is faith. In the end, it is only faith that matters. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.25 that even the foolishness of God is greater than man's wisdom. Later on in verse 27, Paul writes that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. But what is this foolishness? Could it be believing in something that can't be seen? Clinging to what Einstein called that something behind things, that something deeply hidden. Hebrews 11.1 defines faith as the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Through his study of the universe, Einstein saw the evidence of something not seen, the evidence of God. His studies took him as far as science could go toward understanding the nature and presence of God. But science led him only to more theories and equations. What he needed was faith. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. At times, all of us will struggle with our faith. There will be times when we see the hand of God evident in our lives. Then it will be easy to say that God exists and we believe in Him. But there will also be times of hardship. Times when the hand of God seems hidden. It is for these times that God gives us faith, the solid belief in His presence and His faith, even when we can't see Him. How do you handle your moments of doubt when you're searching? How do you face ideas and discoveries that challenge the foundations of what you believe? Do you allow them to be obstacles that threaten your faith or opportunities for your faith to grow?
1: Yeah, so... Faith is the most important thing, but as we discussed earlier, it's not a blind faith. It's a faith with evidence behind it, and the scriptures will will make that evidence clear to us. We've realized today, going through this chapter, that everything we'll, we do... Will have that, that has any lasting effect, lasting significance, must be based in God's wisdom, not in man's wisdom. But we also learned that we must seek Him. We must cry out to Him. We must admit our need, admit that we don't know it all, that God has wisdom beyond man's wisdom. We must come to that fork in the road and take that, that one
0: way that leads to God.